Welcome to the Stories Are Soul Food podcast, presented by Cannonball Books, the kids' fiction imprint of Cannon Press. Um, I wondered if you'd seen Dunkirk. Welcome to SAS. I haven't. <laughs> there you go. It's a very short podcast today. We're talk- nope. <laughs> talking about Dunkirk. Uh, haven't seen it. Well, I thought war movies. See, I've seen portion of portions. I've not seen Dunkirk. War movies. We're talking yeah. about war movies yeah. today. War movies today. Because okay. it seems like there are two kinds of war movies. And at least. At least. Well, no. I mean, if you say there's more than two kinds, then I'm wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like there's an optimistic war movie and a pessimistic war oh. movie, and those are our two kinds. I, I guess my thought really? is, really, you think that's it? Uh, yeah, we have we have Lawrence of Arabia, or we have, you know, sort of glorifying everything, or we've got. Do you think Lawrence of Arabia glorifies it? Well, is it just the pop culture of it that's glorified it? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, okay. you know, him him dying at the end. I, I mean, I think that's a fair one to choose as something. Or Bridge Over the River Kwai. Maybe that's a better example of the glorifying. Man, you're you're picking such weird. <laughs> I thought those were like glorifications. <laughs> well, okay. what happens at the end of Bridge Over the River Kwai? <laughs> I can't remember. The bridge. The bridge <laughs> blows up. <laughs> the, the, it's a that's an exercise in futility. They're uh, actually building a bridge for the enemy, and the end it has to be blown up, and all the the they're all sad. Oh, I thought they were the, happy. Because their engineering achievement is destroyed, but they're totally torn because it's an engineering achievement for the enemy. And mm, then, okay. So, yeah, it's <laughs> maybe I have, maybe my theory is not it's good. It's a weird exercise in futility. <laughs> uh, okay. So, here's the thought this is all inspired, you know, Dunkirk was such a just a kind of a dark movie to watch. I mean, not dark, it just he's trying to get you to feel what it would be like to be on the beaches of Dunkirk waiting okay. for rescue. Right. So, I can see why that would be sort of a movie that's isn't that one optimistic well you i i guess i've I not came seen in it this... but they get off of the beaches of dunkirk successfully thanks to the fog correct right yeah and i and... know the, i know the story <laughs> <laughs> i just thought the movie would be more exciting to watch than it was like cheerful like ex- <laughs> <laughs> brian <laughs> we need to start over a, this is a very interesting topic today <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Turns out that you're a very weird <laughs> pair of calipers when it comes to, <laughs> to, to war movies. It comes to measuring war movies. I guess as a kid, looking back, I remember you know watching Lawrence of Arabia, and despite the sad things that happened, and finding it glorious, and finding like, yes, it, you know yes. that's our guy, Steve McQueen, or the just dying in despair <laughs> and futility out there in the desert. Well, Nate, would you ever do a war movie? Of course, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I love war movies. Um I think that I think your binary uh, toggle is fundamentally broken. <laughs> okay. I need to scratch it um, and start over. Optimistic or pessimistic, I think every good war movie has to be fundamentally both. Okay. Of those things. Because wars are fundamentally both of those things. Okay. So, if you win them, uh, there, there's glory and there's optimism and there's uh, courage and there's bravery and the heroic and there's also always inevitably loss mm. and tragedy. So I think that you have latent in the genre, latent in the fact of war itself, you have loss and you have tragedy and you have 
one side winning. So I don't know. I I despise your your breakdown, there, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like I didn't have much of a, a much of a take behind it because I you I was remembering I was like oh yeah Lawrence of Arabia the little the the his friend dies so I forgot about his friend dying until I started thinking through it. So unless you're talking about war movies like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which is not a war movie, it's a schlocky adventure which is fun. Yeah, and it's fundamentally hokey and optimistic and cheeseball. Okay, um, maybe a better way to approach and I this like would it, be, but that's that's a slapsticky adventure as opposed to a war movie, a treatment of war as a subject. Let me try again. Two kinds of war movies: either they're Vietnam type war movies or they're World War II. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. Isn't that like saying there's two kinds of wars? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, maybe like so. Wars that end up in a slew of despond and that are pointless or wars that are fundamentally necessary and mm. have a purpose so all the the reason all of our iraq war movies are so bad is because it's a similar slew of despond like i'm thinking of you know hurt locker or uh uh american the sniper. king's movie yeah american sniper all those are similarly so you think they're colored by the the pointlessness of can you tell the glorifying story like why um, are we dying yeah yeah can you tell that glorifying story set in Iraq? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You just have to find the right lens. Yeah, you'd have to find the right frame. Um, yeah. But I also, I think there's a, a huge amount of propaganda around the Vietnam, the Iraq war, um, struggling to tell the story in a more futile way to control history and to control the narrative for political purposes. So those war those war stories those war movies are being told real time to affect whether or not they are stories of despair and depression or whether they are stories of purpose mm -hmm. so could vietnam have kept its purpose uh and could vietnam have had a point yeah it could have did it lose its way and become completely purposeless yeah it did mm -hmm. uh, did iraq have a point yeah it did it did and it uh, also lost its way it lost its way but it lost its way in the narrative it didn't lose its way on the ground and mm. that's that's the weird thing so on the ground it existed for a reason and then in the spin cycle and in the narrative uh behind podiums and with press secretaries who were telling the story of the war they re-spun it into oops they didn't have wmds so we didn't need to be here um, which was a more palatable narrative than, oops, they had WMDs and they were all smuggled into Iran and Syria and we failed. Mm. So where did you want to place the failure? It was, it was better to put it into a boondoggle of, oops, we shouldn't have been here. They didn't have WMDs than, oops, now uh, terrorist states actually possess weapons of mass destruction and we failed to control them. Mm. So we lost, we failed. Okay. Uh, was a is a much harder pill, um, and I think the Bush doctrines. We're getting to this kind of a weird, you know, very weird podcast now. Um, <laughs> well, I, I but I'm I think there's, take a, there's, a, story a, there's a particular kind of. This is actually really weird. There's a. We're always living stories. We are always living stories. We're always talking about what stories we're living, and we do this whether we're parents. We do this whether we're employees or bosses. We do this whether we're coaches or athletes, students or teachers. We do this whether we're pastors or parishioners or politicians. And so when we've taken action, whether we've gone to McDonald's or, you know, 
decided not to go to McDonald's. We're telling a story with our with our kids. And so there's a there's a particular kind of conservative doctrine that I hate. And it's a particular kind of narrative doctrine that involves lying uh, to be, to keep kind of an invincibleness of the American institution. Mm. And so I think there's there's a way ways in which old conservative old conservatives um and I would sort of chalk this into the in the bush the bush years were the last years for this uh although I think Trump would would have done this as well um in some ways you have near assassination attempts like really near misses when W is president that are suppressed and hidden no really yep and then they are declassified later Mm, where okay. it would have now this is this shows kind of his selflessness a little bit he would have gotten a bump in the polls if he'd actually uh released the fact that somebody almost blew him up in the republic of georgia when he was on a visit that somebody almost got to him like came super close but wow. in the that post 9-11 world uh it was really important that america keep up this perception that we we are now invincible we just got hit hard we just looked like idiots. We had skyscrapers knocked down. Mm-hmm. You know, we looked very, very vulnerable, and we need to look invulnerable mm-hmm. now. So having our president almost blown up is not is not a good look. And so we need to tell a different story. We need to tell a different narrative. We need to suppress this. We preferred to look like idiots with bad intelligence who invaded another state for mm-hmm. no good reason. We preferred that narrative and that look to the narrative of we invaded another state for perfectly good reason and failed. Mm. We did not want to be the country that failed. We'd rather be morons who might stomp in your skull for no reason and invade your neighborhood for no reason, just in case. Aren't we scary? Um, Because that plays better in future negotiation. Yeah, that plays better with deterrence rather than saying we're incompetent and we failed to to locate the WMDs. Um, anyway. Okay. So we, we preferred afterwards to say, Hey, sorry about that. We were wrong. There were no WMDs. Um, and yet I, I happen to know, and I know I'm, I'm nowhere near, uh, a top secret clearance, but I know enough. You heard it here first, (laughs) but I'm, I happen to know enough guys who are involved in the hunt, uh, who were actually tracking WMDs and who are right on the tail of those WMDs and had traces of them to know that they were there. And I have one degree of separation from knowledge of their presence there. And I am just a guy in Idaho. So, mm, okay. So it's I, not like this is a big hidden conspiracy. Yeah. Theory. So it's like, if I happen to have one degree of separation from that information as a guy in Idaho, um, I, I think that I, I can venture to say this is spinning. And we would prefer the, you know, that we would be this character in the story to that character in the story. We would rather be the the cop who kicks in your front door and yells at you for, you know, running them a meth lab when you weren't. Mm. Then say, well, okay, well, be sure you don't. Then the detective who and fails we, to stop we, the crime. Yeah, and then we yeah. walk back out rather than the guy who loses the foot pursuit completely. Um, no, I obviously could be wrong. But that's that plays with other things that happened under W. Yeah. Well, um, didn't Saddam? I mean, he used chemical weapons on his people, right? And we knew who's building them. So yeah. So they were there. But yeah. um, anyway. Okay. Well, I was all this to say is, could you tell a story in Iraq of nobility 
Could you tell a story of courage? Could you tell a story of man honoring God in self-sacrifice? And the answer is absolutely 100%. And it would be in the setting of a place where the opposite of, yeah, failure, where, where disaster's happening. It's uh, the people of, it's, it's a Jeremiah story with people of Israel being pulled off to Babylon. Yeah. And you got to tell the story of Jeremiah in that setting. And so couldn't you tell, can you tell, I think in any real war, you, no matter what, no matter how it goes, you're going to tell a story if you're telling one honestly, that includes the tragic, that includes bittersweet, that includes heartbreak and can include courage, bravery, um, self-sacrifice and, and so on. So I think that any well-told war story is going to include both of those ingredients that you you throw out optimism and pessimism (laughs) okay fair enough do you have a favorite war movie or top couple honestly it it kind of bounces around i recently just watched rewatched flyboys with my kids um because it's an interesting glimpse um into world war one uh pioneers of dogfights and pilots and you know air combat and it's you know it's kind of fun for that reason I really like Memphis Bell um, because for personal reasons, because those are the planes, the B-17s that my grandfather was flying. Mm. Uh, I enjoyed Memphis Bell a lot. And I also, of course, like Saving Private Ryan. Um, I do, I did enjoy, uh, I've started watching season one of Turn, the uh, War for Independence series. Okay. Um, I'm a sucker for Gladiator. Right. <laughs> Absolute sucker for Gladiator. <laughs> I, I know. it's What a great movie. It's fantastic. My wife's always like, I fell asleep when I tried to watch it. And I was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> How could you fall asleep in Gladiator? <laughs> She's always says, I'll try it again sometime. And I'm I like, don't know. But you Gladiator's fell asleep. fantastic. There's so many, there's so many good ones. Um, many, many, many good war movies. Braveheart is, of course, way up there. Uh, and, and that's another example of how you have to have the two together. Okay. Uh, to have a good one. Sure. And Gladiator as well. Um, and then you have really bad ones, really, really bad movies like uh, Robin Hood, uh, both the Kevin Costner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And the new one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the Ridley Scott of, man, that was Pre- prequel so to Robin bad. Hood's life. Yeah. But uh, I, yeah, I, I need to find out how that project even happened. We're going to tell the story of Robin Hood, but. The Robin Hood one where they all dress from Urban Outfitters. <laughs> <laughs> that was the newer one from Lionsgate. Yeah. So bad. That's uh, one one producer told me, I was like, man, talk about derailing your career. Uh, he was talking about a particular studio executive, which we both knew. He was like, man, that one really just. Mm. Mm. Anyway. Mm. <laughs> like, mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm, that one hurt. Yeah, I mean, I guess war seems, you know, tying this into story more directly, war seems to be a little test case scenario of the problem of evil. Like we get to see it in miniature, or not the problem of evil, but the what we do with evil. Um, it becomes a metaphor almost for life. Let me explain this before. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. Uh, it, it seems to me that um, we like those war movies because they help you contextualize normal life like that like if we are in a war uh and the gospel is trying to take over against principalities and powers it seems like those war movies tap into something that's really fundamental primal 
primal story writing. Um, but I don't know if that's more so than other stories or if I'm now just trying to force a theme to work. Um, I'm not going to speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a decent chance you might be trying to just force the cram theme. a theme in but there. But you also could be right. I think there's, um, you know, it's a heightened way. Uh, it's a heightened study of man for sure and of uh, the curse, the fall. Because well, it's that's, a heightened study of man in brokenness, man in uh, in the struggle. Um, and actually, there, there are war yeah, movies okay. that that really. So, nineteen seventeen was just magnificent, uh, really, really magnificent film that should be watched by everyone. And you know, okay, yeah, it's got the long one shot, which is amazing, but it also does a brilliant job of showing the mannishness of man, the beauty of the beauty of. Uh, the one scene of the the man just singing in the woods, just standing there singing this hymn, and and this kind of longing for uh, restoration, you know, longing for peace right before the chaos of trench warfare, mm-hmm. and you know the the heartbreak of a of a young mother, you know, a woman with a baby stuck here, you know, in right. this a descent into hell. You know, it really is kind of a descent into hell and a, and a resurrection. But it's, yeah. So it does it does show a, a real kind of study of the mannishness of man in all of our cursed brokenness. Yeah, I guess here's another way. You you've I've heard you say often before that the problem of evil, like conflict yeah. and struggle, is not an intellectual problem but an emotional one. Yeah, and I stand by that. Right. <laughs> There's no logical problem there. Right. So the war movie seems to answer that for you, right? How so? Because um, you see the conflict, you see the sadness, and then you say, yeah, but Hitler had to be fought. Or I don't know. It, it almost it almost contextualizes the pain in a way that say, um, you, you know, pick something like No Country for Old Men with that same, you can't contextualize that pain and sorrow in the same way that a good war movie can. Does that work? Yeah, maybe. I think that there's, I think we're still pretty messed up when it comes to evil having to be faced. I don't think we know what to do with it emotionally as moderns. And you see this in things like the horrible last Spider-Man movie. um, (laughs) Where it's like, wait, wait, wait. We keep up these villains who've accidentally been transported to this modern moment who are now killing random civilians. We can't transport them back because they'll die. Mm. Oh, no. We can't kill these killers. These people who are killing other people just willy-nilly. They can't be stopped with violence. Uh, In the words of Screen Rants, uh, mocking one moment when uh, Tom Holland is stopped from killing the Green Goblin by Tobey Maguire using only his wise face. (laughs) (laughs) Only his wise face. (laughs) When Tobey Maguire steps in between Tom Holland, Spider-Man, and the Green Goblin and prevents him from killing the Green Goblin with nothing but a look. And then the Green Goblin promptly stabs Tobey Maguire in the back. (laughs) (laughs) It's like... What? Uh, what is happening? What's going on? Why can't we kill the bad guys? Like, what is this? Because it's killing and we can't kill people. We can't kill them. We have to save them. Mm. Really? We have to, what? It does, like, I don't understand. Why do we have to, why do we have to save them? They're bad guys. Um, 
yeah, they're bad. They're killing. Can't we just kill them? We're very confused by all this. And so I think you're correct. Hitler had to be stopped. Villains have to be stopped. Sugar, sugar and uh, no country for old men should have been stopped. Like he had to be stopped. Um, and Tommy Lee Jones runs and Providence takes care of it with a car wreck. But, but, um, yeah, it's like evil must be faced. Evil has to be stopped. And so that actually, even in gladiator, that's a theme that he actually, you know, he has to go to Rome and he has to face this, um, William Wallace and Braveheart and so on. There's this darkness, there's this cruelty, there's murder, there's bloodshed that has to be stopped and it has to be stopped with violence. So it's, it is interesting. Like, how do you tell stories? How do you tell a, a good story of violence when violence is fundamentally the fruit of evil? And yet this, the story is good. It's like, well, because goodness faces evil. That's, that's what it does. And it faces yeah. evil with violence. And then you have things that are tragic. So could you tell a good story of violence in 70 AD around the fall, fall of Jerusalem? You know, when Rome is gathering mm. around Jerusalem, the sack of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, could we tell a story of Jewish heroes there? And I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's... It seems like... And uh, I want to. Not only do I think so, I want to do it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, I don't, that, wouldn't that be, have to be pretty close in, right? Because the broad scale is judgment deserved. No, but even could, I guess it, it, you'd be you could be out there wide. Okay. You'd be totally sympathetic, right? I guess we're not huge fans of the Romans anyway. I would, yeah, I would, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would be close in as well. I would, of course, zoom right on in on those Christian Levites, and yes, they would be Messianic Levites who successfully smuggled out the ark and other relics of the temple and escaped the Romans and made it all the way to Axum <laughs> where they built the shrine. So yeah. Yes. Of course. Okay. Uh, question about this from, yeah. from, we were discussing this in the office. And the, the question is, when you say problem of evil, partly answered by, you know, it makes a good story. Isn't that an intellectual answer to an emotional problem? Nope. Why not? Um, okay. So it's an answer to a question. It is not an answer to a logic problem. Okay. There's not a, there's not a logical problem. So if you say, how could, um, an all good God, uh, how could an all good God use evil? or allow evil and the question is in what it's a story so okay gotcha not in know, himself it's not yeah something that so, he's done yeah it's like it's you know you you have a, a question of uh of culpability and does is there a logical problem when 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 somebody says of necessity um a, a god an author of necessity, an author who writes a scene with an evil character is himself an, an evil author. It's like, well, that's a logical claim. That's an ontological claim about evil itself and also culpability of an author, which we would deny. We don't think that Tolkien is evil because he wrote with orcs, nor do we think that God is evil because he writes with uh, Pharaoh. So I don't see it's to say it's a story is to answer the, to answer the question. It's not to say there's, uh, it's a, it's not a logical answer to a logic problem, mm, if that okay. makes sense. So I can, I can point out that it's not a logic problem 
Um, and that's, that is an answer, I guess. So yeah, I am answering questions, but I'm answering questions by denying that it's a problem, a, a logical problem. Gotcha. So people would have to say that you have to become a Platonist, um, and say there's a big old, um, pond of evil goop and that in order for anybody to have done an evil thing in this world, they have to be participating in that evil goop. And in order for God to have created the world, he has to have made the evil goop and have gotten the evil goop on his hands. And therefore is, and that's the definition of culpability is that there's this black goop on his hands. Um, and that's just not the, that's not the philosophical situation. Gotcha. So to say it's a story is to, is to shift the philosophical ground completely. Um, anyway, I hope, I hope that answers the question. There's a lot more there. We could actually do a whole episode on the problem of evil and really, really kind of dive in on it, but it's, um, cause it is, it is interesting, but, um, if you go with Augustine's answer and that evil is an absence, then it does. I don't think it actually gets you a privation. I don't think it gets you out of anything either because God still would have created the absence. Mm. Right. So if it's, no, if an, yeah, if an absence is evil, if it's like a, a you know, some kind of canker sore <laughs> of, of virtue, there's some kind of uh gap where there should be a, a missing arm of sorts. Yeah, there's, there should be something. Instead, there's not. So there's missing virtue. There's some kind of absence. There's a privation. There's something bent. It's like, well, God created this world, and he made Pharaoh, and he made Pharaoh with something missing. Um, it's like, I think we just have to stick close to Romans. I think we have to stick close to the scripture where it straight up says, who are you, old man? God is an artist. He is a potter. He's working with clay. And who are you? Who, you know, who are you, oh man? Who, what is the pot to say to the potter? Um, if we get really specific, what is the porcelain to say to the potter? Why would you make me the toilet and not the china? Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, that's it. It's just, it's some for some. Why, would you, for why honor? would you make this porcelain for dishonor and that porcelain for honor? It's like, what would make us say that God must, you know, how could an all good God make some porcelain toilets and some porcelain china? It's like, well, because we needed both. (laughs) (laughs) Why did we need both? Because this is a story. Why did we need a story? It's like, because, well, God is a creator God who is creating something specifically to manifest the nature and glory of the triune Godhead mm-hmm. and all his nature and all his manifest um, attributes. Right. And then of course, when you get into the specific, which is where the problem always comes, but why me? So why of. did I have to stub my toe? Right. Then Paul changes the metaphor and changes it to a body yep. of us all working together. Yep. Why um, did, why did I, I mean, like how could an all good God, not make me six foot eight and famous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's like, um, oh, well, didn't, I mean, it's like, because well, he didn't have to, you're being selfish. Yeah. yeah. Stop being stupid. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, so it's, it really is kind of interesting when, when we, 
we talk about any author using a character that displeases him. I actually think it's really important to rephrase the problem of evil fundamentally and say, how could an all good God uh, allow things which displease him? Hmm. Uh, how could an all good author work with characters who do things which displease him on the page? And it's like, well, that is, that's actually a far more patient, um, an intelligent and wise author and wise God who is allowing and working with things that uh, will enable him to manifest the depth of his love, the depth of his justice, the depth of his mercy, and so on. His, his full nature will be manifested in a way that could not happen apart from that. I'm sure you did this on purpose, but when you rephrase it that way, we also end up talking about God rather than talking about the evil. Exactly. Um, yeah. Which is how which is the point. Yeah. So all of creation exists to serve God and to glorify God. And we will all, all of us will glorify God in this narrative, in this story. And we will all glorify him and we will all reveal his nature and we will all reveal his nature as objects of wrath or as objects of mercy. So we're either going to, in this narrative, display uh his mercy through the depth of his atonement and his atoning love and the gift of his son. Um, or we're going to manifest his justice. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to manifest his justice either way, but the justice poured out on his son or poured out on us. So yeah, either way, what's, ne what's necessitated there is, uh, characters in his story who have fallen short characters in his story who have displeased him who have defied his holiness and who must be clothed in the righteousness of his son or who are going to stand before the judgment seat of clothed only in our own unrighteousness. Yeah. So, and as a character, that's something you can come, can come to grips with. Like yeah. what is my place in this story? And yep. we've all read biographies of people with terrible lives, for example, who've used it for good or yep. term made a profit on being, a vessel for dishonor in some way. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so I think that when we look at, the, to bring it full circle, when you look at war stories and you look at what God has done through the, you know, the destruction of nations, you know, through the cities of the plain or Babylon, um, you know, it's like he's, he's raised up mighty nations to humble. He's raised up Pharaoh to lay him low. Uh, he raised up Pharaoh to deliver his people. Yeah. Specifically from Pharaoh and then also to swallow him in the sea. You know, it's like, this is, why did he do that? It's like, well, to glorify his own name and, uh, and to manifest, um, well, to, to, to basically to manifest his attributes and for the father to glorify the son, the son, the spirit, and so on. Right. Yeah. For the whole triune Godhead to be glorified and, and made manifest in, in the story that is the real world. Yeah, story writing advice is always raise the stakes, and you can't have any bigger stakes than ultimate glory or right. ultimate judgment. That's, Absolutely, that's the stakes. Which is why I like war stories. There you go. And optimistic and pessimistic ones. <laughs> we got off to a, a bumpy start, but we we finished. Strong. We got there in the end. We circled the cul-de-sac. We hit the curb a couple of times, but we had fun doing it. Yeah, there we go. It's been another pleasant <laughs> afternoon with stories or something. With sass. See y'all next week. <laughs>
Hi, it's Brian Cole here, wanting to let you know how you can support the Stories Our Soul Food podcast. You can do that by checking out Canon Plus. Head over to mycanonplus.com. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the SASF podcast. We'll hopefully be seeing you at mycanonplus.com.